All right, so this series is called Not Yours because we have a tendency like those seagulls uh, in life to like to declare things as mine. Uh, my wife said she's happy to give me plenty of sermon material over the next six weeks um, as she spends most mornings at home with our kids as they get up. And she said, yeah, texted me the other day, it's not 7.30 yet, and the, all the kids are fighting over what's theirs in our bed, uh, and then turned what was nice, a peaceful morning into, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's just not a, a kid issue. Um, it, it carries with us a lot of times all the way through life, and uh, kids do it, and they get in trouble. Adults do it, and we create huge issues at work, in our families, in churches, uh, when we want to declare things as ours. And the truth of the matter is, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 gives us this important principle, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God. Um, in fact, I see this as this amazing, if you will, glorious invitation by by the Father through His Son Jesus to say, if you want to follow my Son Jesus, if you want to follow me, you, you get to give up your life. I mean, there's two ways to look at this. If you're someone who hasn't made a decision yet to follow Jesus, um, you, you still in some ways are in control of your life. It's, it's the decision you've made not to turn it over to Him yet. And I hope that you'll see each week as we go through this um, that actually it's a, it's a real blessing. It's not a bad thing to turn your life over to God. We looked at that last week, uh, that when we try to hold and grip our lives so much, we just end up stressing our own selves out and trying to be in control of everything and build our own glory when in fact we're to live for God's glory. Uh, and I think it's, a, I think it's a, a, a thing of freedom that God gives us, that you can give these things over to Him and not worry about your life being your own. And so last week we looked at my life. This week we're gonna look at those things that we like to say is, my money. That's, that's my money, right? And have no fear for those of you who, who are worried that the church always wants your money, that we already took the offering. Um, but of course, we're going to you know, have the ushers stand in the back before you leave today with bigger buckets. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this is not a, this is not a service um, a sermon to try to re receive something in a service. This is a lifestyle. And like I said a moment ago, um, when God says, hey, it's not your money, it's my money, I think, he's, I think he's doing that to free us. And one of the reasons why people get so jumpy and upset at the church or other places that want their money is because we, we are very possessed by it. Um, it made me think of a, a joke. I think I shared this many years ago, but in case you, you hadn't heard it, it was a cell phone was going off in a men's locker room, on and on and on. And finally, this man walks over and he answers the phone and he's getting dressed, so he sticks it on speakerphone and he says, hello. And the woman's voice comes on. She says, hey, honey, are you at the club? He says, yes. The woman says, I'm at the ball and I just saw this most beautiful leather coat for only $1,000. Do we have money for me to buy it? He says, sure. She goes, oh, and, I, and on the way to the mall, I stopped by the Lexus dealership again, and they have the one that I've been wanting in their inventory, finally. He said, well, how much is it again? She said, 90000 He looked up and said, well, okay, but if for that price, make sure it has all the features. Make sure it's loaded, right? At this point, other people in the locker room are just starting to listen to this with their mouths wide open, like, what in the world? And then she says, honey, there's one more thing. I just finished talking to Sarah, our realtor, and the house we wanted is back on the market, and they dropped the price to 980000 He says, you know what? Let's make an offer for nine hundred. But if they won't come down, just give them the full price because I know it's the house you really want. At this point, everyone is just mesmerized by this conversation, right? And the woman says, thank you so much, honey. I love you. And the man says, I love you too. 
He hangs up the phone. He turns around in the locker room and says, does anybody know whose phone this is? (laughs) We don't have a problem with anybody talking about anybody else's money or what they should do with their money. But we get a little, we get a little anxiety, we get a little anxious when people want to start talking about, about my money, right? Mine, 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 right? A seagull's got it. So let's look at what the Bible says. In fact, um, Jesus um, uh, almost, I think it's almost half of uh, the parables and different lessons that Jesus taught about was on finances. Um, uh, so many verses in the scripture on money and because it's an important thing. And let me tell you why, Matthew 6 24 to 27. Well, we're just going to look at the first part of 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Within this verse is this, this crucial, critical thing for us to understand, which I believe is why the Bible talks so much about money and why Jesus talks about it enough. In fact, you know, quite honestly, I don't, I don't have an issue talking about money is not something that I'm afraid of, but there's so much to always talk about that I have to make sure that I, I, I talk about it because I want to somehow stay in step with how much what we believe in and our faith talks about it, but I don't even come close. Can you imagine 52 weeks a year if 23 of them was about money? I mean, would you, would you come to our church? This is an interesting thought, but yet that's, what, that's about the percentages of Jesus. It's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting to think about because I think he knew something that oftentimes it's not just that we have possessions, but our possessions possess us, right? I remember I, I, I was dog-sitting when I was younger um, for, this, uh, for one of our neighbors, and they had this huge dog. It was like 100 pounds, and uh, I, was, I was probably in middle school, maybe first part of high school, so I was probably just barely over 100 pounds, oh, the days. And uh, I remember walking the dog and a neighbor stopping and laughing as I was going by as I'm trying to hold on to this thing, and he's like, who's walking who? You know, and it was very clearly that if this dog really wanted to go somewhere, he probably would just pull me along. I mean, I had the leash, and I looked like I was in control, um, but really I wasn't. I mean, he was probably bigger and stronger in muscle than I was. And, and you know what? I think this is what Jesus is really getting at here in Matthew, is that you need to be careful. Even, even the phrase, my money, kind of assumes that you're in control. But what the Bible assumes is with money most of the time, you're not in control. You're not in control. Who's walking who? Right? We, we become possessed with our possessions. In fact, most of what we look at today are going to be the words of Jesus, who we, we know and believe is the Son of God, and the words of Solomon, who's probably the richest man who's ever walked the earth. Both of them have a lot of good things to say about money. Um, but if you, if you remember back in 2008, I'd been here just two years, there was the huge global economic crisis. Right? This gives you a little picture about like, who's walking who, who's really in charge. Just in 2008, I read this in a book recently, and I'm sure this doesn't even tell the whole picture. But within those few months of kind of the the meltdown of the stock market and different things like Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme, the chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, that is the gigantic federal home loan mortgage company um, in the United States, he hung himself in his basement. The chief executive officer of uh, Sheldon Good, the leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in his Jaguar. A French money manager who worked here in New York who invested a lot of the wealth of the European royals on all of Europe. In fact, he lost $1.4 billion to Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. He slid his wrists in his downtown New York apartment. A Danish executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in a $750 a night suite in London. Burn, uh, an executive for Bear Stearns 
when uh, J.P. Morgan Chase bought out his company and he realized they were not going to hire him, jumped from the 29th floor of his office complex. On and on and on and on. So you tell me who's walking who. Right? None of these people that I can tell without doing deep research, I didn't have time this week, were, were going to go to jail. They just lost a lot of money, and for them, that equaled no life. I might as well kill myself. I might as well kill myself. Hey, Jesus has something here when he says you need to be careful. You need to be careful. In fact, you have to make a choice. Who are you going to serve? There's an old Italian proverb. <laughs> it almost sounds biblical. It says this, money is a good a servant but a bad master. Money's a good servant, but a bad master. And what I want to look at today, just I think really simply, is the difference between money being our master and God being our master, and what the two, and how, and how they're so different. So first of all, if, if money is our master, number one, we know this, it makes us chase it. It makes us chase it. Ecclesiastes 5.10, from Solomon, richest man probably, it said that there was so much silver when, when he was uh, a king, it was like silver became like stones, like pebbles in his kingdom. Filthy rich. And this is what he says. Whoever loves money never has enough of it, says the richest person in the world. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. There's this idea that, that money is just this elusive thing that requires us to chase it, and it's addictive. It's addictive to get it. In fact, you probably know this. The casino industry builds their entire industry off of this fact, right? They're, they're, it's not random winnings in a casino. I mean, this has been proven many, many times. I mean, there's, I guess, the blackjack tables and craps tables or whatever, which is a little bit different when you're somewhat in control of things, at least. But when you go to slot machines and those things, they're set on ratios to just pay out so much over time that never loses the casino money. Not only that, but they're set to just give a little bit every once in a while because the casino knows and has built his entire industry on the fact that if you get a little bit, you're not going to stop. You're going to keep going and going and going until you lose it all because you won't be able to stop. It's just, it's just, it's, it, you just chase it. You're after it. The more wealth we have, unfortunately, you would think we would, we would get happier or more satisfied, but no, the more we want, says Solomon. It's just unsatisfying. It's like drinking something, maybe, maybe soda or, or something like that. If you're really, really thirsty, you, you're, you're going to drink something that's going to taste good, but it's going to leave you more dehydrated than when you got started. And somehow money just does this to us. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit, right? The casino industry knows most people don't get that. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Not only is, is when you're chasing something, um, it reveals the fact that it's unsatisfying, but it also just becomes simply exhausting. When you can never achieve something, you never find rest. You never stop. You never slow down. And you'll notice that about money. You never just get to a place where you're like, okay, I'm okay now and I can rest. It makes me think of, I don't know why, but immediately while E. Coyote, right, in the Roadrunner, right? He was always chasing this guy, trying to catch him. And what would oftentimes happen, right, is the Roadrunner would stop and the coyote would run off and then realize, kind of in the great cartoon a animation world, like, oh no, I'm in the middle of the air. And then he falls, right? It looks kind of like the story of the suicides in 2008. Just chasing, 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 chasing. And then all of a sudden, what, what they wanted, what they lived for is gone, and they realize there's nothing left underneath them. It was there, I'm sure. I'm sure some of them had families and whatnot, but the problem is when you get in the chase, 
It's like horses with blinders on. It's the only thing you see. And then when it's gone, you're left with nothing. You, you realize you've sacrificed everything, your, your family, your, your health. I heard, heard a, a financial planner say, see if I can say this, you spend the first half of your life spending your health to get money so that you can spend the second half of your life spending your money to take care of your health. <laughs> That's pretty good, true. That's a truism right there. Is all of a sudden we end up like the coyote where we realized without even realizing it that we have given up everything in the chase. We've given up everything. I love the story. I didn't put it in my notes. But I read it a few years ago of a man who, who had up a multi-billion dollar hedge fund whose 11-year-old daughter told him, I, I don't want to lose you and had this conversation with him and he quit his job so that he could just be a stay-at-home dad with his daughter. I mean, that's that's, that's not that we can all do that, but that's the idea. That's the principle behind it. Ecclesiastes 5.11. Here's something interesting. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. <laughs> Is that as children increase, they consume? No, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. It's kind of like the old thing. Anybody who wins the lotto tells you, all of a sudden, everybody becomes your best friend and needs money, right? And the more money you have, the more things you find to spend on your money. Isn't that true? The more things require you to take care of your money, your expenses go up. In fact, the more we have, the more we spend. Haggai says it this way in one six: you earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in them. It's like the more we have, the, more, the bigger the holes get that start to go through them. So listen, if we become slaves, if we are serving money, it's something that we're chasing after and never going to realize or be satisfied in it. It's part of it. Money also makes us insecure. <clears throat> Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.12, again, Solomon, richest man in the world, says this, wisdom is a shelter, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Interesting. Uh, uh, The word preserve means to give life or let live, in other words, to revive or refresh. In a way, it's kind of to give CPR, to bring life into situations. He says, yeah, money is a shelter, it, it, it'll cover you, but the difference between that and wisdom is wisdom preserves your life, implying the opposite, that, that money does not revive you or bring life. In fact, it takes it. Isn't it true? Ironically, acquiring wealth doesn't make us more secure. In fact, it oftentimes the opposite happens. We become more paranoid, more stressed, more obsessed, more controlling over it. It was, it, we want it to be the shelter, but it doesn't become that. Uh, he says in, uh, in, earlier in, in chapter 5, Solomon, he says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat a little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It's really interesting. Here's a great quote from Henry Ford, which is just the exact wording of this in a different way. He says, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Interesting. Right? It, it, it's true, it happens to us. That even though we think if I get more, I, I'm good, things are going to slow down, they're going to feel better. Ultimately, if you're after more money because it's your boss, it's what you're serving, it doesn't lead you to places of greater security, but actually insecurity. Matthew uh, 6, the verse I read to you, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one or love the other. You can't be devoted to both, so you cannot serve both God and money. The next verse, this is Jesus talking in Matthew 6, the next verse Jesus says, I think there's no coincidence of the context of this, the next verse says this, therefore I tell you, therefore you can't serve God and money, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What is he implying? (laughs) That when God is your master you worry? No, I don't think so. 
But when money is your master, you worry. Therefore, don't choose money, choose God, because then you don't have to worry. But if you choose money, you, you, you will worry about your life, what you will eat and drink, and about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I, I think there's a connection in the context here when Jesus says, man, make a choice, but if you choose God, then you can start letting go of all these worries. But if you choose money, money constantly reminds you of what you need to wear, of what you need to eat, of what you need to get, and what you need to have. Money itself, as many people have always said, is not the problem. It's the fact that it oftentimes puts us in a servant role. It is, we become submissive to it, and it is our master. One more, money makes us takers. Money makes us takers. This is a great little passage in Deuteronomy 15. Um, li listen to this. If anyone is poor among you fellow Israelites, talking to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, in any of the towns the Lord God has given you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Here it is. The seventh, it's the seventh year. The year for canceling debts is near so that you don't show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Let me stop real quick. I'm going to read one more verse. But what is he really saying is that God had actually instituted this economic principle in the Jewish culture that said every seven years was this, this year of redemption, and so they would cancel all debts. And so God, already knowing people's selfish motives and the fact that they were controlled by their money, knew that the amount of loans that they gave out began to be reduced as it got closer to the seventh year, Right? Because if I loan it out in year one, I'm going to get most of it back. But if I loan it out in year five or six, as I get close to seven, I'm not going to get it back. And God just calls him to the carpet on it. How dare you? How dare you stop loaning people money just because you know you're not going to get it back? He says, stop being hard-hearted and tight-fisted. I think that challenges us really to the core of our being of generosity. What? what, what? What, what if I don't get it back? What, what if it's not used for that? Whatever it is. I mean, God is just challenging them right there. Hey, if they ask you for help in the sixth year, you give it to them. Don't complain about, hey, wait, I'll give it to you in year one. No, that's all just being driven and controlled by selfishness instead of by a heart for people. Verse 10, give generously to them and do not with a grudging heart then because of this, listen, great promise. This is why it's freedom. The Lord your God will bless you in all you work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Man, when you think of the word hard-hearted and tight-fisted, do you, like me, think of someone who's just like cheerful and joyful and they're just going around smiling? Is that, is that how you think of someone who's tight-fisted and hard-hearted? No, you don't do that, do you? Who do you who, what do you think about? You think of like a curmudgeon, a just unhappy person, just get away from me. You think of Scrooge, right? You think of the character in Charles Dickens' play, uh, the uh, Christmas Carol. You think of Ebenezer Scrooge, which the irony of Scrooge is this. In the story, he has all the money and is the least generous. He has all the ability and all the capability, and he's the one who gives the least of it away. It's a very ironic thing to have the most to give but what's really true when money is your master, when you have the most to give, you, you see it not as I have the most to give, you see it as I have the most to lose. I have the most to lose. 
And so you hold on to it. You become tight-fisted and hard-hearted. The more wealth we have, in fact, the more we hoard. Isn't it true? we have any hoarders in the building? People trying to raise their spouse's arm. Don't do that. Don't do that in church. Ecclesiastes 5.13. Listen, I, I didn't make it up. Solomon says it again. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, the wealth hoarded to, harm, to the harm of its owners. Man. He says it's just we do it. We fulfill it. We have this tendency to hoard. Listen, thank God that we don't have to serve money. Thank God that he has given us a better way and that we can serve him. Where money makes you do all these things because you're its slave, Jesus came to the disciples and said, I no longer call you servants. What did he say? I call you friends. God comes into our lives and doesn't make us slave for him. We could never slave for him enough anyway. Jesus took care of all that and then God invites us into relationship with him. And so to serve the Father looks so different than when we have to serve money. Money makes us do things, God gives us stuff, right? So our Father, just those three points really simply, the Father gave us Jesus. God doesn't make you chase him, he came to you, you know that. I mean, in fact, pretty much every other religion is built on the fact that you have to somehow find your way or attain yourself to God or get to him, whereas the difference, the unique difference of Christianity is our God said, you can't get to me, and that's okay because I love you, and I'll come to you. God didn't say, chase me. He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He doesn't make us chase him. He gave us his son. Matthew 11, then in, in turn, Jesus invites us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This, this idea of come is not the idea to chase. Well, come, 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 come after me. No, Jesus, this come is this invitation to, to join him. It's an invitation. I'm not going anywhere. Come and join me. Get off your track. Get off the direction you're going and come and join me. Take my yoke upon you and let's go do this together. So different than money. You got to have more. You got to have more. Keep chasing. Keep having more. And Jesus comes and says, hey, let's just take a walk together. Let me, let me put my yoke upon you and you'll find rest. That's what the Bible talks about with contentment, that you have inner peace no matter what you have on the outside coming or going. The second thing, the Father gives us what we need. Instead of money that makes us more insecure, as we get close to God, as we accept His Son Jesus, we, we, we find security because God gives us what He needs, what we need. Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. That God, this is what He's going to do. He's a giving God. He wants to give it to you. And as you get closer and closer to Jesus, he, is, he provides the things that you need and probably redirects you from the things you don't need. You know, you know, greed, I think it's the only one in the Bible, the only sin that says, be careful of all kinds of greed. I wanted to get into that today and we don't have time. But what does that mean? I mean, there's all kinds of greed. The Bible says don't lie, don't steal. But when it gets to greed, it says be careful of all kinds. Because greed works its way in our life in so many different ways we don't even see it. We don't even notice it. Lastly, um, of those points, the Father gives to us so that we can be givers just like Him. We're made in His image, and to me, this is the restoration of coming back into His image that we give to others. I read it just a minute ago in Deuteronomy. Give generously then to the poor. Do this without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hands to. 
There'll always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. You know, God wants us to experience what it's like to give to others because that's the kind of God he is. He did that. He gave and made this world and he knows the joy, the verse, it is more blessed to give as you find more happiness to give than to receive. And God just wants you to experience that. He wants you to experience that. That's what it looks like to serve God. Boy, he just gives and gives and gives and allows us to experience life out of it where money takes and takes and takes. Brian, come on up. I, I want to um, interview somebody today that I want you to hear a story about, about all this uh, before I conclude here in a couple minutes. And... Um, here you go. Uh, this is Brian Long. I'm going to get my, my notes here, make sure I got my questions for you, right? I'm doing all the talking here. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're good. Um, Brian's told me a story a couple times, and uh, I said, you know, would you just come and kind of be my living illustration uh, for this message before I wrap it up because of his journey and so much that he's told me about? And, uh, and so just start with that, Brian, because I know there's not time to go into the whole thing, but, but basically, how would you describe your relationship with money early on in your life, and what did it do to you? Well, I, I was raised in a family where my father modeled it perfectly, but I went to college and picked business as a degree because it was the way to support a family when you got out. And I think very slowly over time, it kind of became something where I was grasping for that golden ring and I was climbing the ladder on the wrong side of the wall like so many people do. And I was masking this in the, the phrases that would say, I'm just supporting my family, I'm doing the right thing. And I was basically you know, foregoing um, rewards now, think, thinking I was going to give my family more later, later. that I'm going to give it all up now. Right. And so in 2003, it, it came to a, a real crescendo because I started a business. And for those of you who think you have a problem with worshiping money, don't ever start a business. <laughs> and I got to say, money wasn't an issue for me where I was trying to buy the shiny car or get the big house. Money for me was a way to, a tangible way for me to say, I'm okay. I'm, I'm worthy. I'm successful. I'm a good provider. It was a way to kind of beat back feelings of failure. Well, what happened was the business grew, and then in 2011, we were tied to the real estate market. And in 2011, when the, the market came to a head and things blew up, we were part of some of those stories where contractors were, you know, yeah. shooting themselves in the head in, in the driveway of the house they couldn't pay for yeah. uh, as they gave the keys back to the, to the bank. Yeah. So it was a horrible, horrible time. We lost 70% of our business right away. And because of all my missteps throughout my early years with my marriage, I lost my marriage almost. I shouldn't say lost my marriage, but I was living in an apartment separated from my wife and my business was near bankruptcy. So this is circa 2011. And in the attempt to try to not fail, I had failed at everything that was important. That's really what it boiled down to. Yeah. So you, you'll, I want you to share it, but God has restored your family, your marriage, your business. But t tell us, how did that happen? How, how, what was that shift? How did that take place? I need an hour, so I'll try to, yes. I'll try to really boil it down. But, I'll give uh, you 58 minutes <laughs> less than that. Yeah. <laughs> um, 2011, I was living in about a 500-square-foot apartment. Um, my wife and I had been separated for a couple of months, and it ended up being about two, two and a half years we were separated. But I was in the pits of despair. Um, we were talking to bankruptcy attorneys on the, on the business side, and... Um, no sign of the marriage being returned. And a good friend of mine, who I met at that time, you know, walked me through a book called Shattered Dreams by Larry Crabb. And in this book, um, the, the gist of it, I'll boil it down, is a lot of us, me included at this time, felt like we had checked all the boxes. Um, I was a good Christian guy. I went to church. I raised my family well. I'm a good dad. I read my Bible. I went to men's groups. How can all this be happening to me? What is going on? 
And I realize that a lot of us in America look at God as kind of a genie in a, in a bottle or in a, in a lamp. We pull him off the shelf when we want something, mm -hmm. and we rub it three times and get our wishes. Mm -hmm. And if he does them, great. We, we love him, and we put him back on the shelf until we need him next. And if he doesn't, we get angry. Mm -hmm. And I found myself saying, why? What is going on here? And so what I learned through that book, but just through that journey, was that I was viewing God as this magic genie, I guess, and I learned that I'm supposed to worship him and love him for who he is, not what he does for me. It's not like, if you right. give me blessings, then I'll, I'll fall at, my, at your feet and worship you. I'm supposed to worship him anyway. And if the blessings come, great. If they don't, uh, oh well. But mm -hmm. just by taking your focus off of, I've got to get, 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 provide, 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 the good things started happening. And I want to say the shift in our, or my view on money at the time, I don't want to say it happened overnight, but it was pretty close. Right. Some huge transformations took place, and the business all of a sudden went from bottoming out to taking off. Yeah. And within two years, year and a half, we had paid back all $600,000 in debt, so wow. we owed nobody anything, and wow. God was beginning to use the business for so much more. Yeah. The bigger part was the marriage came back. Now, yeah. My wife and I, just kinda, I would say we stole uh, our marriage from the jaws of divorce. We were right there. And it became a really neat story, which I won't get into now, but between those two things, God's hand was all over it, and he, he did it all in such a way that he had to get the glory. There was nothing, there was no talents, yeah. no treasure, <laughs> no ability of mine that did it. I had to say, God, this is you. It's like my daughter and I used to keep a poster on the wall of my apartment, and we called it our God sightings poster. And every time we saw God do something cool, we'd, we'd write it down. And it took mm -hmm. about three months, and that poster was plastered. We just saw God working in so many ways, and we began to say, this is, this is something otherworldly going on here. It was yeah. really, really a fun, fun ride. Yeah, your wife Wendy's right down here, and we're glad you guys <laughs> stuck it out. And that's another testimony, perhaps for another day, because yeah. that is a beautiful testimony and one that yeah. we need to hear as much as money, that yeah. two, two and a half years you were separated? Uh, yeah, two and a half years. We got back together in um, kind of October of 2013. So. Praise God. Yeah. That is uh, awesome that's amazing. So, Wrap it up. One of the things that caught my attention, why I really wanted you to do this, was this latest book mm -hmm. that you just read and what God is now doing. I want you to hear this through, through your business. Now that the golden ring is not what you're after, right. um, t tell, them, tell them what God is doing now through your company. Well, um, in the beginning, you probably heard me say a lot, my business. Well, after Wendy and I got together again, it became our business, and we began to see that God was trying to use uh, what had been a very bad thing, a very horrible time in life, he was trying to use it as a way to pour back into others, to meet people in their uh, horribleness uh, who were going through the same things we were. And so we began to uh, partner with a ministry called House on the Rock, which uh, saves marriages. They basically really come around or alongside marriages in crisis and put them through an intensive program, a costly program, but we've kind of um, partnered up with them. <clears throat> but I'll tell you, even though we were doing all this with the marriages, I still had this thing sneaking in the back of my head that was saying, you know, my business is just sucking me dry. It's just a constant grind. Sometimes it's not fun, and I felt myself not going back to the whole uh, looking for the dollars kind of thing, but it, I lost my passion mm -hmm. for it. I even talked to Mike Aiello about it. I went to his office one day, and I was just really struggling. So God, again, did some stuff, and he put some people in my life that were Christian business owners, and uh, these Christian business owners gave me a book called uh, Making Money is Killing Your Business catchy title. I, I thought, wow, I got to read that just because the title's pretty cool. Yeah. So I read it, and the guy's a Christian. We actually went to one of his workshops in Lancaster a couple of weeks ago, and he's a devout Christian in Denver, and he, he kind of doesn't come out in the book as a Christian, but he, he kind of pervades the book with biblical principles. Mm -hmm. 
And the basic principle is we have to figure out what our big why is because if we try to use money as the motivator, it's a horrible motivator. It's very temporal. Um, <clears throat> once yeah. you achieve that thing, you buy that lake house, you buy that shiny new car, you send your kids to the Ivy League school, you're left feeling empty again. So he said, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And I would say in the last six months, my, my wife's and my passion for the business has been reignited because now we look at it as how many marriages can we save? What else is God mm. going to do with this business? Because it's just a tool in his hand. Yeah. He's asked us to steward it, but it isn't mine anymore right. or ours anymore. Yeah. So it's kind of been really fun mm. to figure out what is our big why. My wife mm -hmm. and I, are, we went to this workshop and we're writing stuff down. What, why are we doing this? Why are we going to work every day? Because it's yeah. not for money anymore. Yeah. So... Good stuff, huh? Would you give him a hand? Thank you, Brian, for coming and sharing. I just thought his testimony was perfect for what we were talking about, and thank you for using uh, the stewardship word there at the end, because that's what this is all about, is that uh, it's really God's money, it's, his, it's our lives, it's His life, and He asked us to steward it. So I want to I finish with this, because um, to me this is most important, it all boils down to this. Money's ultimate deception, and I'll tell you what it is in a second, but I want to read to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Money's ultimate deception in being our master is this. Listen, listen carefully to this very, very relevant passage, even though several, several thousand years ago, boy, it strikes to the cores of our hearts today. Uh, talking about when the people of Israel would enter into the promised land, God gave them a warning. He said, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you through and brought water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that it might go well with you. You may say to yourself in that moment when you become rich, rich just in things, not even rich as we think of rich, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. Here's the big deal for me. This is really what I want to end with. The, the biggest deception, the biggest problem with money is this. It makes us into self-worshippers. That is a dead end spiritually, physically, and emotionally in life. It's, it's what happened in the garden we don't trust God, we don't think that he is, he is trustworthy, that He has given us enough, and so we go and do it ourselves, and ultimately what self-worship is, is in our own eyes, whether we probably would never admit it or not, we become our own gods. That's a dead end. We become our own gods, which force us, right, to, to achieve, to get, to, to make sure that we can provide. We lose our job, or we get a job, or we get this, but it's all on us, and we feel that pressure. But it moves quickly from just money 
to the next thing in life. I don't need God's help. I got myself into this mess. I'll get myself out of it. And, and, and we, 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 we think we can rescue ourselves. We think we can protect ourselves. But eventually, it moves into our faith. It says it right here. Eventually, as your riches grow, if you don't remember that God was the one who is your provider and not you, that's what happened here in Deuteronomy. You will shift from remembering God is your provider to you are your provider. And the damaging thing of that is, I think this is why 1 Timothy 6.10 has this verse. It says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the ultimate demise of money is that literally it takes our faith off of God and puts it on ourselves. We forget the Lord, we walk away from him and that is the worst tragedy that could happen to us in our life why those people ended up committing suicide and giving, because they could see they were God. They were the ones that were responsible for everything. They had no hope beyond themselves, no hope over, over what they built and their life. They couldn't see past it in that moment. Man, God is the source of all life, and he has made it available through Jesus. Which is why Jesus, when he came, said in John 7, I'll leave you with this, Jesus stood with a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those he believed in him were later to receive. Jesus says, man, you believe in me, I'm gonna plant the Holy Spirit inside of you. And who is really the Holy Spirit in this verse? He is the fabricate or the manufacturer of life inside of you, not you, but the Spirit of God in you, restored from our disconnect from Him in the garden, planted in us, and now from within, life flows from, out, um, flows from inside out of us versus this whole pursuit in our life of trying to grab life on the outside. It's exhausting. It's unsatisfying. It'll, it'll never achieve. What God wants to do is plant life back into us again by His Spirit so that we have the manufacturing place of life from within us. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Man, of all the things that I said today, the thing I want to first finish with is this. I don't want to know if you have a money problem. I want to know if, if you have a God problem. If you've been deceived into thinking that you're God. You would never say that. You wouldn't admit that. But ultimately, down, down below, as Deuteronomy just said, our pride comes in and you've convinced yourself you're God. It's all on you. You've got to figure it out. And really the first step of repentance is realizing you're not God, that God is, and that he is the source of life. He is the source of your hope. That you ask him for forgiveness for all the ways that you've tried and failed and all the ways that you continue to do wrong and say, God, you're the only one who's right. You're the only one who provides and I wanna give my life to you. If you're ready to make that shift from self-worship to worshiping Jesus, the author of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and allow him to plant God's spirit of life inside of you. Today, without anybody looking around though, but between you and me and God, I'd like to just pray for you. Would you, would you look up at me and, and raise your hand if you need to make that decision today? Anybody at all? I don't wanna miss you. You've never done that before. Maybe it's been a long time, but you feel the Lord tugging your heart today. Anybody at all? Would you just make sure you wave at me if I don't see you looking around the room? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. I don't wanna miss you. Thank you, Lord. Let's make one more decision before God today. Lord, we, we, some of us, I'm sure many of us in a lot of different ways, Lord, have served money, have allowed it to serve. We're chasing it, Lord, we're, we're feeling the effects of it. But today, I pray that you move us from being tight-fisted 
and hard-hearted to people who would be open-handed, to people who would be open-handed to the things of God. If that's, if that's what your prayer is today, if you just want to ask God to help you do that, would you just lift your hand to the Lord? You don't need to look up at me, but would you just lift your hand up to the Lord for a moment? Let's just let's make a decision together. Let's all agree together. Lord, we, we just ask that you would come in right now. Lord, help us, Lord, in all kinds of greed. Lord, reveal to us, Lord, maybe we don't even see ourselves as hoarding or being greedy, but Lord, we don't want to have hard hearts. We don't when we see a need, Lord, we want to just respond to it. We, we want to be a giver like you're a giver, Jesus. God, make us into people who are just open-handed and open-hearted, Lord, and not grabbing onto these things and being controlled by our wealth. God, we open up our lives, we open up our hearts to you this morning to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Can I encourage you? If you weren't in one last week, get into mini church this week. What a, what a great discussion you can have with others. We all struggle with this in one way or another. And find one. Go, go to foursquarechurch.info or go to the groups tent and get our little booklet and get in a group this week and, and allow them to encourage you and to strengthen you.